0: Good evening. We're going to pick up in uh, 1 Peter tonight. Our series is called Sojourners, Living as We Long for Home. It really is a wonderful book, and Peter has a lot of wisdom for us that I think is very relevant for us today. And tonight we're going to talk about Our holy hope. Our holy hope. Before we get started, let's pray together one more time. Lord, we ask for more grace tonight. Lord, help us, God, to hear from your servant, Peter. And more importantly, Lord, through him, help us hear from you. Speak. To us, Father, your servants are listening. And whatever we need to hear, Lord, please say it. And strengthen us, God, and encourage us and embolden us, Lord, to live for you, God, in these last days. Help us redeem the time, Lord, for the days are evil. And help us, Lord, to set our hope fully on the grace of that is coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let that be the rock, Lord, that uh, the solid rock um, upon which our life is built. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. And as you do, I'm going to share this little story with you. Uh, The school system in a large city had a program to help children keep up with their schoolwork during the stays in the city's hospital. One day, a teacher who was assigned to the program received a routine call asking her to visit a particular child. She took the child's name and room number and talked briefly with the child's regular class teacher. We're studying nouns and adverbs in his class now, the regular teacher said, and I'd be grateful if you could help him understand them so he doesn't fall too far behind. The hospital program teacher went went to see the boy that afternoon. No one had mentioned to her that the boy had been badly burned and was in great pain. Upset, at the sight of the boy, she stammered as she told him, I've been sent by your school to help you with nouns and adverbs. And when she left, she felt like she hadn't accomplished much. But the next day, the nurse asked her, What did you do to that boy? The teacher felt as if she must have done something wrong, and she began to apologize, but teacher said, the nurse said, No, no, you don't know what I mean. We've been worried about that little boy, but ever since yesterday, his whole attitude has changed. He's fighting back. He's responding to treatment. It's as though he's decided to live. Two weeks later, the boy explained that he had completely given up hope until the teacher arrived. Everything changed when he came to a simple realization. He put it this way They wouldn't send a teacher to work on nouns and adverbs with a dying boy, would they? What's the lesson? Hope changes things. Hope changes things. Probably about the worst position a person can find them in is having no hope. No hope. But you see, if you have hope, you can endure almost anything if you believe you have hope. And what Peter wants to do for this church who is suffering and who will suffer, suffer and the Bible says the church in every generation will suffer. He's trying to give us what we already have, hope, hope, and that changes things. And so that's what I want to talk about tonight as we talk about our holy hope, our holy hope. And so now if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word from First Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 13. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The word of God. You may be seated. Uh, I'm going to talk about three things that uh, Peter... uh, Teaches on respecting our hope uh, tonight. Number one, I'm going to talk about setting on our hope. Number two, I'm going to talk about living for our hope. And number three, glorying in our hope. Setting on our hope, living for our hope, and glorying in our hope. Before we get started, I want to briefly summarize where Peter has taken us thus far. So if you remember, he opened up his letter by referring to Christians as elect exiles, those chosen by God, set apart from the world for himself to be his redeemed people. And in, in Peter says that election then makes us exiles, aliens and strangers in the world. That is, we as God's chosen people are in the world, but we are not of the world. This world is not our home. So we can't live in the world the same way that uh, non-Christians do. This world is not our home. Our home is the eternal land of promise, the fully unveiled kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus Christ will manifestly reign over all the world and we with him. Nevertheless, at this time, before the consummation, before the fullness of the coming of the kingdom, we live between the ages. We live as those who have been reborn to a living hope that is the 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 spirit is at work in us now making us new people now even as we wait look forward to the future coming of the bringing in the full newness that Christ will bring when he comes the new creation And so we live in between the ages. We are destined for another world, but for now we must live in this fallen, broken world until the proper time of Christ's return. What this means then for us is that we will suffer now in this age. That's a very clear teaching of the Bible right here in, in 1 Peter. We will endure difficulties, pains, and sorrows of all kinds, but we don't have to fear We don't have to be afraid, and we certainly don't have to lose hope because the trials in this age are not to destroy our faith. They're to refine our faith. They're to purify our faith. The trials themselves act like purifying agents in our lives. In fact, the trials actually increase our hope in and our longing for Christ and his return when he shall come and judge the world and right every wrong and make all things new. And so the faith that actually endures trials comes out on the other side, shining more brightly for him and for his glory. And so in such faith receives its reward, salvation, both now and in the last day. So then, in as Christians who have been reborn to a living hope, we are partakers in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Being on this side of Christ's coming, as we talked about last time in 1 Peter, we see things that the Old Testament saints longed to see, but didn't get to see. We see things now that the angels were longing to look at. We see them now in Christ and in the Scripture fulfilled, and especially in his word. But we. Being 2,000 years now. After Christ coming. We don't see these things like the apostles did. With physical eyes. But we see them nevertheless. We see them truly. But with eyes of faith. But as Peter said. Even though we do not see him. We love him. We love him. And are filled with glory joy inexpressible. And filled with glory. And so that brings us to our first point tonight, which is setting on our hope. And that, and we see that in verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you look at the, the, if, uh, chapter 1 up until this point, Peter has been talking about our hope that we have in Christ, and the the position that we have in Christ. We're like exiles. We're children of God. We've been reborn. So now we've been reborn into the family of God. And so we have this, sure, this this inheritance, he says there earlier in verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed on the last day. And so we have this inheritance, uh, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And so this is what Peter has been talking about. And so now what Peter does is he calls us, he calls us to action. He calls us to application. Since all these things, he's, he's calling us to do something with this hope. Don't let this hope that he's been talking about, this inheritance that belongs to us, since we are now children of God, don't just let that be information that fills your mind, but do something with it. Set your hope on it. That's the command. Set your hope on it actively in your heart and in your mind. Put your hope in the inheritance that you have in Jesus. Put your hope in that. Believe it. Trust it. Bank on it. Because remember what we said at the beginning. Hope changes things. You can endure anything when you believe that you have hope. When you know that you have hope. So set your hope on it. Believe it. Trust it. Because in Christ, we have a something that no circumstance can take away. Our inheritance is eternal. Circumstances are temporary. And specifically here, he, he tells us, here, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this is just, just another way of saying what he's been saying a lot, and which is, I think, one of the key themes of, about Christian about the Christian life in the entire New Testament and that is that Christ, that Christians we live in view of the end we live in view of the coming of our coming Christ of our coming king of the judgment of the of the judgment of the world if we know that those things are coming we can't just live uh, however we want we have to live in a certain way we have to live in view of the end In view of reality, and that's what Peter is calling us to do. And what he is saying here is that in addition to the unspeakable grace that God has already shown us in Jesus Christ, if you can believe it, he's saying that there's unspeakably more to come. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means if you think you've gotten a lot of grace from God, then guess what? You've got more coming. When Christ comes, he's going to pour out grace so great that the greatest suffering anyone has ever experienced on this earth will have been as nothing before it. It's coming for us. Jesus is coming for us. And how are we disposed to set our hope? Peter puts it this way, by preparing our minds for action. That is, by being sober-minded. That's what he says. Uh, The Greek literally reads, girding up the loins of your minds. But that doesn't really make sense to us. So they translate it. Preparing your minds for action. But we understand what it means, right? You know, girding up your loins referred to tucking in your garments because back in that day everybody wore robes, even the men. The men wore robes. And so if they were going to uh, prepare for action, if they were going to run or if they were going to fight or if they were going to do some strenuous labor, they had to kind of tuck it in or else it would get in the way. And what, Paul, and what Peter is saying here is that we have to gird up the loins, not of our clothes, but of our minds. Get ready, he's saying. Get ready. By doing what? By being sober-minded. Get ready by what? By setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is how we do it. We have to get ready. We have to gird up. We have to get ready for action. That means that setting our hope on Christ, living sober-mindedly in the world in view of reality, he's saying that's not going to be easy. It's not going to be a stroll in the park. It's going to take work. We, got, we have to prepare. We have to get ready for it. we got to tuck in to get ready, to fight, to run, to, do, to, to, uh, to have that hope that he's telling us to have. Peter says this includes being sober-minded. This, of course, means being not drunk or with, uh, ha- have your mind altered by some kind of drug. But, of course, it means much more than that. It means having a general mind of sobriety. It means thinking and reflecting clearly on the world and on reality as it truly is. It means not taking a glib, lackadaisical, go-with-the-flow perspective on life but it is about feeling the true weight of the eternal realities that are set before us every day. Heaven and hell, life and death, eternity. These things are before us every day. And if we're not thinking clearly, if we're not sober-minded, then it will be so easy just to go about life to go about life missing the act, the things that are actually the most important, and so Paul and so Peter says, "No, no, no. be sober minded, prepare your minds for actions, set your hope on it." It's mental, it's earnest, difficult, hard mental activity. It means that the, the battle, the Christian battle, the greatest Christian battle, is not primarily out there, but it's in here and in here. It's in our hearts and in our minds. It's a battle for what you believe, right? What does the devil, the devil, what he does, and his power is in what? Lies. Lies. So the way that we fight the devil is what? By knowing the truth. What is it? It's a mental battle. It's a battle for your heart. It's a battle for your mind. It's a battle for what you believe. If the devil can get you to believe contrary to what God has spoken, then he's winning. It's a battle for the heart. It's a battle for the mind. That's where the Christian battle is. We must gird up our minds. We must set our hope on things that will last forever and not Temporary fleeting things. We must think soberly. We must refuse to be swayed by false worldviews and ideologies. And there are many of them out there. Which are, which are urging us and pressing in on the Christians. Try, try, trying to help us. Trying to have the world's values. And to think about things the way the world does. When the Bible gives us a specific way. We would say God's way of looking at the world. And there's only one right way. And either we're going to see the world that way or we won't. We have to put our hope ultimately on the grace that is, to, that is coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is utterly crucial. It's utterly crucial for endurance in the Christian life. Because if your hope is not fully set on Christ, then you're just not going to make it. Why? Because life is too hard. It's just too hard. And if you put your hope in something, in anything that is less than Christ, then guess what? It can be taken away. And guess what? When it's taken away, you'll have no hope and you'll be crushed and you won't know what to do. And I'm afraid that's a lot of people. There's a lot of people, they lose hope and they they say they lose their faith because something happens to them. But see, the reason they lost their faith is because their faith was in that thing that they lost and not in Christ. You can't lose Christ. He can't be taken away. And so if your hope is in him, then guess what? You can never lose your hope. But if your hope is in anything else, any other hope can be taken away. Peter is trying to gird us up by telling us, to set our hope on that which cannot be taken away. We are not guaranteed any fleeting thing. The one sure thing is Christ. And if we have him, then we have a hope that cannot be shaken. Because no one can thwart Christ and what he wants to do. And so that means that we have to prepare our minds. We have to gird up. We have to think We have to learn to think critically about our lives, to think soberly, as we talked about this morning, to reorient the way we think about our lives, to make sure that Christ is the blazing center of our lives because there's all these other things that that because of the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're going to vie and try to take that central place in your life and you have to keep Christ there. He's the only one worthy of it and he's the only one that can hold you together. He's the center. And that... One of the things that means is we have to continually fill our mind with truth, right? If you haven't yet, there's, there's still the daily uh, Bible reading plan on the table in the back of the vestibule. Commit this year to read all the way through the Bible and to do what? To saturate your mind with truth so that what? So that, you, that, you can, so that you'll know the truth when the devil lies to you. Because if you don't know the truth, you won't be able to spot the lie. Fill our minds with truth this year. Beware of what you absorb, of the media that you engage in and that you fill your head and mind with. Beware of those things. Beware of the worldview that underlies what you're being fed and that subtly vies for you to think the way the world thinks. It's a lot more subtle and a lot more dangerous than most people realize. Guard our hearts. Bible says, guard your hearts, for from it flows the springs of life. Set our hope on Christ. Believe it. Preach it to yourself. Remind yourself of the grace that will be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, we, we just can't, this cannot, I just don't think it can be emphasized enough. Jesus, Jesus said that his coming would be like in the days of Noah. What were people doing in the days of Noah? Smoking Boston butt. Going to Walmart. Well, not really, but you know what I mean. They were hanging out. They were hanging out. Just, just chilling. And then the rain came. And it's too late. But see... Noah, God had told him what was going to happen, and most importantly, Noah believed him and set his hope on it. So what did he do? He started building a boat. If we believe God, we have to set our hope in it so that everyone else may be surprised, but we won't because we, we had our hope set on it the whole time. So number one, setting on our hope. Number three, living for our hope. Living for our hope. We see this in verses 14 through 17. Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so, we set our hope on the grace that is, to, uh, that is coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he tells us that as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but be holy, as he who called us is holy. And so, Note here, note here the flow of Peter's argument. And I think it's important to just kind of point out that he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but be holy as he who called you is holy. In other words, he's saying, you're children. You are children. So do what? So be holy. That's important. Why? Is it? It's important because... It's it's so many people will just get it backwards, as we talk about so often, but I think it's so important because we have a sinful bent towards works righteousness. God doesn't call you to be holy in order to become his children. He gives you new birth, you become his child, and then you become holy. That's how we have to get the order right. We don't live in a certain way to become a Christian. We live in a certain way because we are Christians. We don't live holy lives to gain a hope. We live holy lives because we have a hope. Christ has saved us. Christ has changed us. He has brought us into the family of God and has reborn children of God whom the Holy Spirit has given new life, whose old self has died with Christ, and his new self has been raised to life with Christ. In that way, do we live holy lives for God? Because we have a hope. We obey because we are God's children. Have been reborn to a living hope. And it is, and as God's children, then it is fitting that we be obedient. As children, we trust Daddy. We trust him. We believe in him. We follow him. We're not, as Peter says, conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Before we were saved, the Bible says we were ignorant. Right? We were ignorant. We didn't know as we ought to have known. Right? Some of you remember that. And in one sense, you might have known, but you didn't. You might have known the gospel, but you didn't know the gospel. You know what I'm saying? We might have had some kind of intellectual understanding of what Christians were saying, but we didn't really know for ourselves. We were ignorant. Ignorant of the truth about God. Ignorant of the weight of the reality of our sin and the coming judgment and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We were ignorant. We didn't really know. We didn't really understand. And such ignorance, Peter says, is dominated by passions. It's dominated by passions. That's why he says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. When you don't know the truth about You see, part of our ignorance is that we were willing slaves to our desires. We're willing slaves to our desires. Someone who's enslaved to sin, they're ignorant of certain things, not because they can't know them, but because they don't want to know them. I don't want to know, even though deep down I do, that I shouldn't be with this, I shouldn't date this person. (laughs) I don't want to know that. Well, I know that this kind of, I know I shouldn't do that, but you don't really want to know, so you don't believe it. Passions of our former ignorance, willing slaves of our own desires, not realizing that embracing those desires were drawing us inch by inch to hell. But no more. Because the Bible says we've been born again to living hope. We were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. We're not ignorant anymore. And so we can no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Rather, we put them to death. The old me is dead, and now Christ lives in me. So how do we live then, Peter says? We're to be holy. We're to be holy in all our conduct. And then he quotes one of the central passages in the Old Testament concerning the ethics of God's people and that is we are to be holy because God is holy right as reborn children of the most high God there has to be some kind of family resemblance or else we betray that we're not truly children and if and if daddy's holy we got to be holy born again to become children of a holy father and so since God a holy God has saved us from our sin and has given us new life and that new life is predicated upon Christ himself by his spirit living in us how then could we be anything less than holy So beware of the temptation beware of the temptation to excuse sin and to not be ruthless in putting it to death it's a strong temptation. I'm, I just I feel like I hear it so often. People will say things like, well, nobody's perfect. And that's true. But the fact that nobody's perfect isn't an excuse for your sin. When you stand before Jesus Christ, eyes flame a fire, and he looks you in the eye and says, why did you do this and this when you knew it was wrong? Are you going to say, well, nobody's perfect? No, that's not what you're going to say. We can't use the fact that we still live in fallen natures, which is true, as an excuse for our sin. Because the Bible says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's not an excuse for our sin. Paul said, there's no temptation except which is common to man. And that God always gives us a way of escape. So that we can endure it. Yeah, when we were sold in sin, when we were in our former ignorance, of course, we couldn't do anything but sin. But now that Christ is in us, we can, we must be holy. Why? Because God is holy. Some people act like any call to holiness as a Christian is legalism. Let me tell you something, if any call to holiness as a Christian is legalism then Peter, John, Paul, and Jesus Christ were legalists because they repeatedly called their God's people to be holy people. In fact, in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So combined all this with the fact that Peter quotes the Old Testament, this shows that contrary to many, I would say that the New Testament ethic is not less stringent than the Old Testament. If anything, it's actually stricter. Not in terms of all the rites and rituals, but the difference is that in the New Covenant, we have something that people under the Old Covenant never had. The Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If If Christ is living in us, if Christ is living in us, how can we be anything less than holy? And of course, this doesn't mean that we'll never stumble. It doesn't mean that God won't forgive us. But it does mean that we'll never make peace with our sin or make excuses for it. Why? Because we are destined, the Bible says, for glory. For Christ has come for the expect pur- purpose of killing our old selves so that our new selves, our true selves, can live. The happiest people in eternity will have been the holiest people here. And the more faith filled, joyfully holy lives we live for God now, the greater vessel that we'll have in eternity to fill with the glory of God's grace. Why would we steal our own joy by toying with sin when we are children of the Most High God? And then finally, here in verse 17, Peter says. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so notice here again he reemphasizes call on him as father. Right? So all this then, he, he's continually reminding us then that the basis of our lives is our already established relationship with God. God's our father. And because he is our father, this is how we're to live. And notice the juxtaposition here. Call on him as father who judges impartially. And so that means that God is both father and judge. And we can't separate the two. We can't. Say, and I feel like I've heard some people, and and I mean I've I've heard some people that basically express this thought. Well, if God's my father, that means that, you know, and I'm his child, that means that in the end he's basically going to be okay with whatever I do because, you know, I'm his child. Your parent might have parented you like that, but that's not how God parents. Precisely because God loves his children, he won't put up with sin in your life. He won't. Why? Because sin destroys. He destroys. So Peter says precisely because we call on him as Father, then let us live with fear, reverential fear in the time of our exile. That's what he says. Because God will judge. God will judge. And the Bible is actually very clear about that. There will be a judgment. Of all people, both believers and unbelievers. And for those who truly have embraced Christ and God knows, that judgment won't be regarding our final salvation, but it will be concerning our rewards. At Jesus' coming, he's going to bring unspeakable grace, but he'll also bring judgment, reward, and recompense. And so Peter says, yes, you belong to your father. And because you belong to him, how much more should you live holy lives? Knowing that he's going to judge. And knowing knowing that you didn't want to live the bare minimum Christian life that you could live. But that you could live, that you lived as holy as you possibly could for your loving father. And so number one, we said setting on our hope, number two, living for our hope, and number three, glorying in our hope. And that's what we see in verses 18 through 21. He says, "'Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways "'inherited from your forefathers, "'not with perishable things such as silver and gold, "'but with the precious blood of Christ, "'like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. "'He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, "'but was manifest in the last, time, in the last times for the sake of you.'" who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so we're to live in holy fear during the time of our exile, knowing that, knowing what? That we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Again, it's this same language. We're to live holy lives, not in order to be ransomed, We live holy lives because we were ransomed. Ransomed with what? Not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see what Peter is calling us to reflect on? He's saying, think, Christian, think, church, about how great it is a thing, how great a thing it is that God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Think about the cost of your redemption. Not with silver and gold, which ultimately is worthless, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. Think of the cost. The cost for our redemption was the greatest conceivable cost. And that's what God gave for you and for me. If you had to pay a ransom to deliver somebody from their captors, from their sin, and it it would cost you your only child, would you do it? Now tell me something. Let's say you did do it, and then as soon as that person was free, they turned around and ran right back to the captors. How would you feel about that? shall God deliver us, redeem us, purchase us, ransom us with the blood of his own son, and then we turn around and run right back into the arms of our sin? It can't be. It can't be. It mustn't be. At the greatest possible cost, God has redeemed us. A sinless one paying a sinner's debt. And that's what The Bible says, Romans 5, 7, and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Truth is, we like to think of ourselves as good people. The Bible says there's none that's good. Jesus didn't die for good people. Jesus died for sinners. But guess what? He died anyways. We were ransomed at such high cost. So we can't run back to our sin. And then Peter concludes this thought with just an exultation in Christ. The preciousness of his blood and the glory of what he has done for us. He says Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last time for the sake of you. We talked about in the very first sermon in Peter what foreknown is in reference to. Uh, That foreknowledge in the Bible relates to personal relational knowledge, not just mere knowledge of future events. And this is one of the verses that we used to argue for that. It wasn't merely that God knew what Jesus would do. It was much deeper than that, right? They had planned it together. the, The plan of redemption was forged in eternity within the heart of the Trinity, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't plan B. It was God's plan for the revelation of his glory to the world and to the angels. In fact, this is Peter unites the two in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, they go together. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. All part of God's plan. And yet, Peter says, but he was manifest in these last times for the sake of you. That is, the plan was from eternity past, but Christ has come. Christ has been manifest. The plan has come to fruition, to fulfillment. For whose sake? For your sake. For your sake. God has fulfilled his plan. God has kept his promise. And through him, Peter says, we are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and our hope are in God. And so we see that it comes full circle. Our faith and our hope are in God. The same God who is faithful to his plan and his purpose in eternity past, to save his elect children is the same God who's going to fulfill his other promise. And that is to send his son again to save us fully, finally, and completely from all sin. To come back and judge the world and to remove all sin so that we can live with him In the land of promise. A world free from sin. Life eternal. In his presence. And so as we close tonight. The charge here from Peter is this. Set our hope. Set your hope on it Christian. Think about it. Believe it. Preach it to yourself. And even when the difficulties of life come. Preach it to yourself all the more. My hope is not shaken. It cannot be taken away. It's waiting for me, and it's coming. And if you don't have that hope tonight, you can have it. Turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus. Trust in him. Follow him. And you can have this hope that nothing on earth can take away. Let's pray.